Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 41, Sayonara Jupiter Mini-Analysis. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of crazy kaiju cinema, Nate Marchand. It's been eventful on Monster Island the last few weeks. After MIFE's previous broadcast, the infamous brain-eating Terran space women Flobella and Barbella stormed in and tried to kidnap Gamera, king of the monsters. Why? Because he's, quote, sweet and full of turtle meat. I hope that was sarcasm, Jimmy, because I don't want them to start serving Gamera meat at the Kaiju Sakaba that just opened a few months ago here on the island. Yeesh. But, Kaiju lovers, today marks the end of another chapter on MIFV. Since I launched the show, my mini-sodes have focused on films covered by a... former colleague after I left the, shall we say visionary kaiju radio program we started. Today I'm discussing the last of those films. What I'm doing next, I'm still trying to figure out. Regardless, this episode is on the Toho classic, well, cult classic might be a better way to describe it, released in 1984, Sayonara Jupiter. Of course it's one of your faves, Jimmy. It's dedicated to, quote, NASA and all other people who dare to venture into the universe. Or is it because of its most infamous scene? Hey, man, no kink shaming here. I'll explain it a bit, listeners. Now, this film is certainly tokusatsu, but it isn't kaiju. Maybe. It's weird. In the 22nd century, ancient alien carvings are discovered on the Martian ice caps, postponing a massive project to transform the planet Jupiter into a second sun. The leader of that expedition, Dr. Eiji Honda, and the crew of the Minerva space station soon learn that the carvings foretell the coming of a black hole that will destroy the solar system, prompting them to destroy Jupiter in a desperate effort to change the course of the black hole and save 18 billion lives. Sayonara Jupiter in many ways is a transitional film for Toho Tokusatsu. It was Akihiko Harada's final performance, he plays Dr. Inoue, it was written, produced, and co-directed by novelist Sakyo Komatsu, who'd previously had his novel Subversion of Japan, E-Spy, and Virus made into hit movies by Toho. Well, with the exception of Virus, that is. It was also co-directed by Koji Hashimoto, who would go on to direct The Return of Godzilla, and the special effects were directed by the glitter master himself, Koichi Kawakita, who would become Toho's SFX master for most of the 90s. It's most definitely a product of its time, as Komatsu was originally commissioned by Toho in 1977 to make a film to capitalize on the popularity of Star Wars. He wasn't able to write one fast enough, so a certain other movie was made instead. Yes, Jimmy, your movie. You want to know why we skipped it? Take it up with our Orwellian overlords. As I was saying... The film was in development for five years as Komatsu shopped the script around to multiple studios, including some in America. 
He wanted it to be made with a huge budget. He was quoted as saying, I don't see why we can't make a sci-fi movie with ideas and philosophies that stand up to American films. Eventually, he went back to Toho, who hadn't made a special effects film in some years. They then spent three years making the film, although its original 1.8 billion yen budget was slashed to 600 million yen. This ballooned to 1 billion yen thanks to advertising, and while it grossed 1.7 billion yen, it was considered a flop by Toho. While it seems to have been influential more to people working in the Japanese film industry, I mean, the red jackets worn by some space station personnel look like the one worn by Dr. Miyuki Otonashi in Godzilla Final Wars, so I'm sure Ryuhei Kitamura saw this, the film has slowly faded into obscurity in the tokusatsu fandom. And I think I know why. The gorgeous special effects can't save the film's overstuffed script and obvious identity crisis. Komatsu's original script, which was the basis for his novel, would have been a three-hour film. I believe it. I've rarely seen this much stuffed into 139 minutes. Nazca lines on Mars, eco-cult slash terrorists, apocalyptic black holes, solarizing Jupiter, a large cast of characters. Komatsu even toys with the idea of evacuating 100,000 of the 18 billion people living on Earth, which harkens back to submersion of Japan. Visually, the film borrows heavily from 2001 A Space Odyssey, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Wars, and even a little from Alien. Komatsu is a smart writer, but several concepts and plot points aren't developed or are dropped. That's sad because they're fascinating ideas. Totally, the film is scatterbrained. While it endeavors to be hard sci-fi through and through, it also introduces Dr. Honda, who is named after the car company to get a sponsorship and not after the famous Toho film director, and his friend Hoger Kin by having them greet each other with fisticuffs. <laughs> Seriously, man? You flyboys would punch each other awake? Well, anyway, the film would also have these pseudo-music video sequences with Peter, or as I like to call him, Hippie Jesus, the leader of the Jupiter Church. Then there was the scene that ripped off Jaws when a shark almost attacked a kid and instead killed the church's dolphin mascot, Jupiter. Then it has the Star Wars-style ray gun shootouts at the end, and beats Star Trek IV The Voyage Home to having a massive spaceship creature something, dubbed the Jupiter Ghost, calling out to humanity from the planet Jupiter's great red spot in what sounds like a whale voice. Shout out to the Drift Space for having both Jimmy and I on their episode for that movie. This is why I wondered if it could qualify as a kaiju film. I'm sure Travis from Kaiju Weekly would say it does with his loose definition of the word. Insert Clifford joke here. All the while, the film tries a very very hard to be artsy. This is most blatant in what I already mentioned is Jimmy's favorite scene, the zero-gravity lovemaking. You actually tried it? Tight-lipped on that too, huh? Ugh. So, zero-G sex. This scene is weird, to say the least. It starts as typical lovemaking between Dr. Honda and his estranged girlfriend, Maria, who's a member of the Jupiter Church and committing acts of terrorism, and quickly escalates into this faux artsy sequence of the two naked lovers floating around starfields and other surreal images while expositing to each other. 
because that's totally what you'd be doing during something like this. Now, this does come back at the end of the film when Dr. Honda lays dying after preventing Jupiter Church from blowing up the Minerva station to prevent them from destroying the planet Jupiter, an attack led by Maria, I might add, because she has confusingly inconsistent motivations. The gravity shuts off, and the two of them float in zero-g as the station detonates and morphs the gas giant into... Well... A space sperm? You really think the monolith in 2001 engages in the transcendent birds and the bees? <sighs> Which leads me to my point, listeners. All the hard sci-fi stories I have experienced, for all their efforts to ground themselves in real science, invariably become transcendental. The most famous example, as I've hinted at, is David Bowman becoming the star child in 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's because these stories realize science can only take humanity so far and must go beyond it. These stories acknowledge not only that there are spiritual components to the universe, but that science can't explain them. This conflict is present in the film as Peter says he, quote, never preached from a pulpit, end quote, but simply sang songs about the earth, which inspired his followers to both live a simple life and commit acts of terrorism to protect nature terrestrially and intergalactically. This is spiritual thinking, but that's challenged by the almost humorously heavy-handed shark attack on the dolphin Jupiter. The animal simply obeyed its natural instincts as opposed to adhering to Peter's lofty views. By the way, Peter's mournful song for the dolphin is where we get the title. It runs parallel with Carlos, the teen genius on board the Minerva, who says he is grieving the impending self-sacrificial destruction of the planet Jupiter. Gotcha. Also, the title of this movie usually gets translated as Bye Bye Jupiter, which honestly sounds strangely childish despite it technically being an accurate translation, which is why I think Sayonara Jupiter is a much better title. Elsewhere, the president of the Earth Federation, who is Japanese, I might add, says he prefers to pray to mankind's wisdom and ingenuity instead of God. His aide calls that a wish, to which the president says he still likes to pray. I say this shows that even an atheist must have faith in something. What does this have to do with the zero-g sex? Given the parallelism between that scene and the ending where Jupiter is reborn, the film seems to say that sexuality is transformative, that it's a gateway to transcendence. Dr. Honda and Maria bear themselves body, mind, and soul to each other, mingling them together. You might think a Christian like myself would prudishly recoil at this, but this film has an almost reverent view of sexuality, which is in line with a proper understanding of Christian theology. Sex isn't merely a physical transaction, but the most intimate and pleasurable experience God has gifted to human beings. In fact, God's first command to Adam and Eve in Genesis was, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, make love and have kids. That's why many Christian traditions see sexuality as sacramental. There's a lot more I could say about this, as I'm sure the island's chaplain Reverend Mafune would like me to do, but this isn't a theology podcast, so I'll move on. As I said, there's a lot of ideas and concepts stuffed into this film, with the most prominent being the solarization of Jupiter. Now, as my intrepid producer told me while watching the film, Jupiter is often called a failed star, but this is a bit of a misnomer. As a gas giant, the planet is mostly hydrogen like most stars, but it lacks the mass of such real stars. Theoretically, if more mass was added to Jupiter, there'd be enough internal pressure and high temperatures to transform it into a star, 
But in order to do that, it take the mass of 1,000 Jupiters. The planet, not the dolphin. A red dwarf would require 80 Jupiters, and a brown dwarf, which has deuterium and not hydrogen fusing with its core, would need 13 Jupiters worth. In other words, this can't happen spontaneously. I'm not sure how the Jupiter Solarization Project was making this happen in this film, but those details would probably bore the audience. I'm sure you'd think it was the apex of entertainment, NASA boy. <sighs> and now for a rundown of a few other key ideas in the film. Mostly because Jimmy insisted I mention them. Another inspiration for the film was the launch of NASA's Voyager program with the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 in 1977. They sent back incredible images of Jupiter and Saturn and the other outermost planets in the solar system over their 40-year mission, including the discovery of active volcanoes on Jupiter's moon Io. Io, a silly place? I'm sure. Voyager 1 reached interstellar space beyond Pluto in 2012, with Voyager 2 doing the same in 2018. As Stephen J. Pine said... Voyager did things no one predicted, found scenes no one expected, and promises to outlive its inventors. Like a great painting or an abiding institution, it has acquired an existence of its own, a destiny beyond the grasp of its handlers. The drop-too-soon concept of the geoglyphs discovered on Mars were inspired by the Nazca lines in the Nazca Desert in southern Peru. They were created between 500 BC and 500 AD by people making depressions in the ground. Amazingly, they've been preserved thanks to the plateau's dry and windless climate. These lines, which altogether have a combined length of over 800 miles, form geometric and zoomorphic, as an animal, shapes, including one seen in the film, like the spider and the condor. In the film... The implication seems to be that they were made by aliens on both planets. It makes sense given that these shapes can only be seen from high in the sky. Finally, I'd like to put my English major hat on again for a second to discuss the symbolic name of the space station, Minerva. This is the name the Romans gave the Greek goddess Athena. Appropriately, Minerva is the daughter of Jupiter, a.k.a. Zeus, and was the goddess, quote, of wisdom, strategic warfare, justice, law, victory, and the sponsor of arts, trade, and strategy, end quote. It makes sense, then, that the HQ for a project related to the planet Jupiter would bear the name of the god's daughter, especially since destroying Jupiter becomes a strategic move to save the solar system. Sinar Jupiter is a mess, but it aspires to be high art. It does so by being earnest and not pretentious. For that reason, along with its Hollywood-caliber special effects, I'd say it's worth watching once, at least. All right, we've gone a bit long, so I'll play a quick podcast ad and then share some listener feedback. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, Chris, so I was thinking. Of course you were. What's up? So, I know we talked about doing a new podcast... Uh-huh. And we talked about focusing on Ultraman. Go on. But what kind of podcast do we want to do exactly? I mean, we could do the whole veteran, newbie approach. Yeah, David, that's what everybody does. You know, that's literally what we did with our last show. <sighs> Crap, good point. Well, what do you think? I mean, we only have a few more days before we go live. Well, what if we did a show where we watched a bunch of Ultraman series, 
but we only had three minutes to discuss each episode. You know, like the color timer. And what if, in order to invite as many people along on the journey as we could, we only focused on series that were easily and legally available to watch? You know, I think you're onto something. Now we just need a name. Hmm. Listening to Saved by the Belial, an atrocious Ultraman podcast. Welcome back. While I plan to discuss some YouTube comments and social media messages, we had an influx of Apple Podcast reviews for the first time in a while. So those shot to the top of my listener feedback pile. Our first comes to us from username MonsterMom84. The title is Just What I've Been Looking For. She writes, After trying several podcasts within the Godzilla genre, I've only found a few that I really enjoy. I'm happy to say that the Monster Island Film Vault is one of them. Injecting myself here. Aw, thank you. Now back to the review. I love the host's enthusiasm for the subject matter. You're welcome. I hear it's infectious. And whomever is performing as his producer is brilliant. Sure, Jimmy. Revel in the fact that someone is finally acknowledging your genius. (sighs) Moving on. I love the unconventional approach the hosts take making the show both informative and fun. Some of the post-credit bits are a little cringe. Really? Sometimes we do post-credits if some new information comes to light right at the last second, but that's about it. What is she talking about? Some of the weird things that happen to us off the air? I'm not sure what's going on here because none of that gets broadcast as far as I know. Unless there's some weird things going on with the powers that be? I'm not sure. Now back to the review. But overall, this show has won me over and is a must-listen each and every time it shows up in my feed. Great work, Nathan and Jimmy. Signed, Becca. Thank you so much, Monster Mom. I love getting feedback like this from listeners to know what works and what doesn't for all of them. Next, much to Jimmy's annoyance, our friends at the Drift Space wrote a review. Oh, chill out, man. The title is edutainment from a highly protected vault. By the way, all of these reviews that I'm reading are five stars. It reads, Nathan and Jimmy have been accommodating hosts to our stay on the island, and we're never short of having fun. Built as a podcast drama, I mean, sometimes there's some drama that occurs on the air, but, you know, I can't help that. See, Jimmy, injecting yourself like that is some of that drama that he's probably referring to, especially when you start antagonizing my guess. Anyway, back to the review. The MIFE does some of the most extensive deep dives into kaiju-related content, leaving no stone unturned as it claws to unearth the most obscure and interesting information about even the most overlooked titles. Listen closely, and you may learn, scratch that, will learn plenty, 
The perfect length episodes went on the road, especially. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And clearly, just like Michael and I discussed on a recent episode of Kaiju Weekly, with how well-written and articulate this is, this was clearly written by J.R. Come on, you guys all heard him a couple of weeks ago when he and G-Man came here to talk about Gamera versus Virus. If you listen to the two of them talk, it clearly has to be JR. Has to be JR. Finally, our third new review was penned by username Tofu Fury, which sounds like the title of a Hong Kong action movie starring Jackie Chan as a chef. The title is A Deep Dive into Kaiju Films. He writes, I don't have the deepest knowledge of giant monster films. Don't get me wrong, I love watching them, but I just don't get to see them that often. However, I do enjoy listening to long podcasts on subjects I find interesting, and this one is just what I'm looking for. Nate has a deep wealth of knowledge of kaiju films and other movies tangential to the genre. Whenever he talks about a subject, I feel like I learned something out of it, which is what I want out of a podcast. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, absolutely give it a listen. Thank you all so much, especially you, Tofu Fury, with that last one. I really appreciate all of you taking the time to do that. It helps us to be found by other kaiju lovers like yourselves. And honestly, feedback like this, whether it's a review, an email, or whatever, interaction with the audience is a big part of why podcasters do what they do, and it keeps us going. It's our lifeblood, to be honest. So I can't thank you enough for doing that, and please keep it up. I want to say that here right now. All of you, please leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser while you're at it. And we will be sure to read those on the air in a future episode. Leave us comments on the YouTube channel, on the website if you want to. And especially, especially, I want to emphasize this. Send us some emails with your thoughts on this film, Sinar Jupiter, or any other film that we've covered. I don't care if you want to go all the way back to season one with King Kong 33. If you've just discovered the show and you want to write in about it, do it. And we will read it on the air. Now, normally this is the point where I would have a mandatory reading of a press release from the Monster Island Board of Directors, but today's announcement is... They informed me during a recent meeting that my contract now says that they own all materials I produce for this podcast. I swear I didn't see that there before. (laughs) Saying they altered the deal is an understatement. Was it something in the soft pretzels Miss Perkins offered me? I met with her, the board's envoy, William H. George III, and their attorney general, Raymond Martin, in a dark meeting room, and spoke with the board on a video screen, but they were just silhouettes with altered voices. They said it was for security purposes. The whole thing was... weird. Yeah, they lay claim to your blogs, too. I feel like Godzilla after getting injected with anti-nuclear energy bacteria. But I will soldier on and continue to produce this show for your entertainment and enlightenment, kaiju lovers, I assure you. And now for a segment dedicated to the MIFV Max members with the Patreon shoutouts. Go show!
Travis, Alexander, Michael, Hamilton, Danny, Demana, Eli, Harris, Chris, Cook, Damon, Noise, and Backs from Redeemed, Otaku. Thank you so much. Your support, financial and otherwise, is what keeps us going some days. You too, listeners, can join MIFV Max and get perks like this, bonus blooper audio, and a bonus members-only live stream show starting at just $3 a month. Check out the link in the show notes. In our next episode, the Year of Gamera continues with the return of podcast philanthropist and writer Ben Avery for Gamera vs. Jiger, a film made the year the Japanese film industry crashed. And you can tell... Jimmy, the next few months are going to be the most trying I've had on MIFV. Gamera hits the bottom of the barrel, and there's no booze left to get through the next few movies. After that, well, now that I'm finished with this series on Toho Classics, I'm not sure what to do next for the minisodes. That's why I'm here, Marchand. What the... Jimmy, you can't just let him barge in like that. Crane's a good soldier. He knows his place, and not to pick a fight with me. Okay, then. To what do I and the rest of the kaiju lovers listening right now owe the pleasure? Remember a few weeks ago after Crystal Lady saved Gamera from the Terran space women, how I said I had an unrelated matter to discuss with you? Yeah? That's what this is. Couldn't it have waited until after I was done with today's broadcast? It concerns your show, so I figured your listeners should hear it. (sighs) Fair enough. What's this about? An old friend of mine is a bit disappointed with you. Oh, who's that? Crane, do you have that orca machine I brought in hooked up to your broadcast equipment? Is my friend outside the window here? Hmm. Open it. Godzilla seriously climbed all the way up here? Never underestimate his determination. Mark Russell told me that he was experimenting with the Orca a few weeks ago and overheard Godzilla was upset with you, Marchand. Why? That's why he's ticked at me? Hasn't he listened enough to know that I covered almost all of his films in my previous podcast life? Godzilla, what language? We're a family show. I'll take your word for it and live in blissful ignorance. Although I will admit the guy I used to podcast with on that other show was a raving would-be gatekeeper. Regardless, I felt I'd done those films justice already. Okay, I get it. More episodes now. 
It only makes sense when you've covered the films for his two biggest rivals. I'm no media expert, but I do know Godzilla is good for business. This is true. Plus, I've been getting requests from our fans to cover them because they don't want to listen to my first show because reasons. You're right, Jimmy. The people have spoken. But more importantly, Big G demands it. And I don't want to make him angry because I don't like him when he's angry. Then I guess he'd be happy to know that I've disagreed with the board's decision to declare Gamera the king of the monsters from the get-go. Which is why he wants you to cover his films on your show, to remind everyone that he is the true king. As if I needed more motivation. Good, because I have ways of motivating people. Are you threatening me, Master Captain? I don't make threats. I make promises. Duly noted, sir. But you heard it here, kaiju lovers. Starting next month, my... Godzilla Redux begins here on MIFV. I'm sure Big G speaks for all of you. So we'll begin that coverage with the original 1954 classic, Godzilla. The one that started it all. I'll see if I can get my original co-host to return because this is such an important film in the annals of the kaiju genre. Good thinking, Marchand. I'll take my leave. Jessica wants to see me? <sighs> Tell her to wait a few minutes so I can wrap things up. We have an exciting new chapter ahead for the Monster Island Film Vault, kaiju lovers. Join us as we explore a kaiju franchise with more movies than Kong and Gamera put together. Yeah, I said it. Now, Jimmy, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is MonsterIslandFilmVault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault, and on Twitter, where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy, and the Monster Island Board of Directors at MonsterIslaBOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Hey, Baka. I'm never going to get used to that.
Oh, well, I'm getting it to stick. Even Miss Perkins calls you that sometimes. Yippee-skippy. I see you bought some Beats headphones with your latest paycheck. Yep. My music has never sounded better, and it cancels out overprotective big pseudo-brothers. Wonderful. Oh, and the Mothra twins' cousin, Serena, is visiting today, and she's a magical girl just like me. Maybe she can join your troop of podcast mascots. Must she? I can get the board to mandate it. (sighs) Not needed. Just let me meet her first. Now, what brings you here? Oh, M. gosh. See my new crystal earrings? Miss Perkins gave them to me a few days ago. They're clip-ons, but I don't care. She said they're a gift from the board as a thank you for saving Gamera, king of the monsters, as Crystal Lady. The best part is, they're actually space Godzilla crystals. Crews collect any pieces that chip while he does his thing on the island. They're thinking of selling them in the gift shop or online. They're the rarest, precious jewel in the world. Hold on, back the kaiju train up here. Jess, we've been over this. The Borg can't just arbitrarily declare another kaiju king of the monsters. And since they did, it's done nothing but cause trouble. Baka, I think it's time you got on board with their decision. What? Gamera's the guardian of the universe and the friend to all children. He's a much better choice for King of the Monsters than a womanizing gorilla or a radioactive lizard who can't figure out his D&D alignment. Dang it! More of your useless knowledge I inherited. (laughs) Passive payback. Anyway, I heard you say you're going to cover Godzilla's movies again. I think that's a waste of time. Who are you and what did you do with my pseudo-sister? She never toes the board's line this much. Maybe I just wised up. Or it's a case of bad company corrupts good character. But then again, you've always been easily distracted by crystals. You're just saying that because the board likes me more. When was the last time they gave you a bonus? That's not... Hey! Well... (gasps) My earrings! How dare you crush them! Jimmy, what the heck are you doing? Let me in, you fiend! Shine, Crystal! Jessica, no. You know better than to use your powers in such a petty squabble. But, but he... uh, Jimmy, explain yourself before I go full tilt big brother on your space warrior keister. That's right. Not earrings! Are you blind? Calm down, Jessica. What are you talking about, Jimmy? Keylock tech? You mean the disco space nuns? Yes, the aliens who took over the island and tried to invade Earth in 1999. But that makes this... mind control? What are influencers? Jimmy may correct me on this. He always does. Anyway, they're supposedly devices engineered from the Keylock mind control technology salvaged after the invasion. But instead of controlling a person or a monster outright like a puppet, they instead make the subject susceptible to suggestion by constantly feeding subliminal messages into their brains. (gasps) And they put those in my earrings? (laughs) 
The Keelux did the same thing to Kyoko Manabe, a high-ranking technician on Monsterland back in 1999. Jess, the board must have wanted to control you after they saw what you could do as Crystal Lady. But how'd you figure this out, Jimmy? Ah, static in the radio signal. I had my headphones off, which explains why I didn't hear anything. You're lucky he's a tech wizard, Jess. No, I'm lucky that I'm too ornery for straight-up mind control. <laughs> You're welcome. But all joking aside, this makes me glad I didn't get the COVID vaccine the board was offering everyone. God only knows what they put in it. Me too. We all better take those Nanish Wakuro Ibuki help Jimmy and Jet develop. At least then we won't get sick and the board can't use the risk of contracting COVID against us. Good idea. But what do we do in the meantime? I'm not sure. Aside from the three of us, I don't know who here on the island we can trust. I agree we can trust Captain Gordon. What about Miss Perkins? She's the one who gave you those earrings and she handles the board's PR. There's no way we can trust her. How do we know they aren't using these influencers on her too? She does have a point. We know basically nothing about Miss Perkins from before she came to the island, and I don't even know when she showed up. Exactly! True believer or not, she's our best link to the board. That's true. She at least seems to like us all a little, unlike William H. George III. Although, I did try to get close to her once already at the Gamera Gala. <laughs> and then it's a good thing I'm her favorite. Of course you are. But it's settled. Play nice with Miss Perkins, find out if there's anyone else on the island we can trust, and figure out who the heck she is and the rest of our Orwellian overlords.